Join me. You may be able to help solve a mystery. Hello again. Hello. Hello. Welcome to another episode of You Solved a Mystery, a podcast where we delve into segments of the iconic show Unsolved Mysteries and reveal their final chapter. I'm Athena. And I'm Chandra. And if we sound exactly the same, it's because we're twins. I've got a little bit of a feel-good for you today. Ooh, feel-good. It's certainly more (laughs) lovey-dovey than other episodes. So today I have another story from Special Number 6, which was hosted, of course, by Robert Stack. Special Number 6 first aired May 6, 1988, and this was under the category Lost Loves. It is about undelivered letters of World War II. This segment was worked into an episode of Season 1 on YouTube, but I forgot to write it down. It's out there somewhere. So the segment opens with a clip of a patriotic old newsreel about World War II V-Mail. What is V-Mail, you ask? I know the answer because I watched the episode. V-Mail, short for Victory Mail, was officially called Army Microphotographic Mail Service. It was a way of addressing and expediting the massive demand for sending letters between soldiers and their family back home. Kodak, remember them? The camera people? Yeah. They signed a contract with the government to develop a system that used microphotography to free up shipping space and speed up delivery of soldiers' mail. Users of email could fill out a specific form that allowed for about 700 typed words, though most were actually handwritten, which would be photographed on a reel of film with other letters, and from overseas it would be shipped back to one of three massive V-mail postal centers where it would be developed at one quarter of the size of the original form and sent to its addressee. Well, that's fascinating. They put out pamphlets on how to fill out V-mail because the writing couldn't be too light or too small or too crowded or it wouldn't be legible when it was redeveloped. The purpose of email was in part to free up space on ships and airplanes, but also out of recognition that regular, rapid communication with loved ones decreased loneliness and increased morale in soldiers. What a concept. And, as Robert Stack says in the segment, quote, For the relatives of those GIs lost in battle, the last letter home became a precious keepsake, a memory of lost love. End quote. I like how you're turning into Robert Stack. Am I? <laughs> you, you do it all with, like, his uh, his cadence, <laughs> his intonations. The man knew what he was doing. 41 years after the end of World War II, in 1986, an exterminator in North Carolina named Mike Minguez was spraying a woman's attic for bugs. He came upon an old duffel bag full of letters and recognized the V on them as being World War II-related. Mike told the Orlando Sentinel that he went back down and asked, quote, Are you aware of this sack of mail upstairs? The old woman didn't hear me, but her caretaker flashed me a look that would have stopped a train. I instantly shut up. She walked me to the door and explained that this woman knew the mail was up there and that it had haunted her for years, end quote. So Mike left, but the situation didn't sit right with him. He told the Sentinel... Quote, I was convinced those letters had to get out there and be sent to the people for whom they were intended, and that this woman did not need to spend her last few years on earth with this hanging over her head, end quote. 
He returned to the woman's home to try to convince her to let him take the letters. The woman explained that her nephew had been stationed on the SS Caleb Strong during World War II and had vowed to mail the 235 letters the GIs had written when he got home. One letter writer who was on the SS Caleb Strong, named Mel Kramer, recalled the conditions aboard the ship to the Orlando Sentinel. It was a cargo ship turned transport vessel. He described, quote, Hammocks were hung five deep in the hold. Toilet facilities were inadequate for the 400 men aboard. Water was scarce. A bucket punctured with nail holes was used for showers. End quote. He said it could be, quote, Lonely as hell with 15,000 men around you. Getting a letter was a big event. End quote. Another letter writer, who happened to go on to become first baseman for the Boston Red Sox, named Walt Droppo, told AP News that the SS Caleb Strong was actually attacked on the 18-day voyage, but wartime censorship meant the letters could really only report on the weather and personal thoughts. So it was attacked before they sent the letters? Correct. Wow. But back in North Carolina, the woman's nephew had forgotten about the letters, and as the years passed, became afraid he had committed a serious offense. That is such a big oopsie, and honestly, I can see myself doing it. Yeah. (laughs) So he stashed them in the attic. After he passed away around 1980, his aunt was too embarrassed to mail them. You don't have to agree with me. No, I... Saying that I'm incredibly forgetful. You could push back on it a little bit. Oh, see, (laughs) I... What the thing I was agreeing to and what I thought you were saying was that I could see myself forgetting something like that and then being too embarrassed to send them, you know? I I think that I would just never remember. Oh. You wouldn't even remember them enough to stash them in the attic? No, I would just... I wouldn't even remember where I put the duffel bag. (laughs) You'd left... You left it on the dock... (laughs) <laughs> when you got off the boat. <laughs> I can walk into a room and forget what I'm doing there, so. Oh, I hear that. Our hero, Mike Minguez, convinced the woman to release the letters to him by promising never to reveal her name. Mike contacted the Postal Service and sent the letters to Meg Harris at the U.S. Post Office. She found that 92 GIs had sent letters to 150 friends and family members, totaling 235 letters. USPS began tracking down the recipients. Meg was prohibited by law from opening the letters, so she only had the information on the envelopes to work with. Gosh, it seems like they could maybe find a way to work around that being USPS themselves. For the sake of returning 200-something letters to people that were sent 40 years ago. Yep. But nope. Meg worked with the Veterans Administration and postmasters across the country to complete the momentous task. At the time of the broadcast, only three letter writers had not been located. Oh, that's pretty good. Meg Harris told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, You have to be real careful when you start telling them about this mail. You kind of lead into it slowly because you don't want anybody to go into shock. And you feel a lot of the closeness of family ties. The whole experience has been one where you realize how much people care for each other and how much they continue caring even after 40 years, end quote. And her smile as she talks, you can tell 
that she is delighted to be a part of this project. She told the Orlando Sentinel, quote, returning the mail was an extremely satisfying experience, end quote. The first to receive his missing V-mail was John Dietz, whose letters were hand-delivered by the Raleigh Postmaster and a TV crew. The letters were to his father and his wartime girlfriend. The news generated by the discovery and delivery of the letters reunited John and others with friends they hadn't spoken to in decades. And I saw that again and again, that people reported they had been reconnected with their old war buddies and gone together again after decades of not speaking. However, Meg's concern about easing people into the news was sadly necessary. Ken Heinrich and William Croft had both been on the SS Caleb Strong, and when Ken called William to tell him about the found letters, William, tragically, passed away from a heart attack right there on the phone. You have to be kidding me. It's awful. Oh my god. (laughs) The letter was delivered to his wife Juanita after his funeral. It was a letter to his mother in which he told her that he had seen a Portuguese man of war accompanied by a drawing of what it looked like. That's so cute. I know. I'm sad his mom never saw it. (laughs) At this point in the Unsolved Mysteries segment, we meet Meryl Page Rapley, a retired teacher who reads us the once lost letter that she received. Quote, Still at sea, May 1944. My precious wife. Darling, I sure miss you. I wish I were back with you right now. It seems so hard to write you, as all I can think of is how I love you and long to be with you. The boat is rocking, so I can't write too neatly. Meryl, darling, I love you, and I hope that we are soon to be together for good. From what information we can gather, I believe the big invasion is on, so I'll be stuck overseas until the war is over. I love you, my darling. Your husband, Frank. Frank was a B-17 turret gunner. His plane was shot down in 1944, shortly after he sent that letter. This episode hit me right in the feels. Mm -hmm. Just one-two punch every time I looked around. (laughs) You can't duck fast enough. They're coming too fast. You can't block it. It's just going to get you right there in the heart. Mara told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, It was just as though we were there together, and just as though he was talking with me. And of course I guess I was more or less in a state of shock. But it was the most wonderful letter I've ever received from Frank, even though all his letters were very dear to me. But after waiting that long and still being able, after 42 years, to get another letter from a man that I still love, that was just something that only the Lord can understand the depth of meaning. End quote. She goes on to say, quote, The short two and a half years I had with him was just equal to a lifetime for me. That's why I never did remarry. Nobody else could ever replace him. And I have every letter he's ever written me, but this was always the most special one. End quote. As we listen to her voice, we watch her lay flowers on Frank's grave. Her portrait is already on the stone next to him. Next in the segment, we meet Peggy, who reads to us, quote, Sweet, just another line today, as I'm always thinking about you and may not be able to write for a few days. 
We haven't seen land yet, but expect to soon. There's about six hours difference in time here, so I often try to think of where you are and what you might be doing. I guess that is natural. Your ever-loving and faithful husband. She tells us with tears welling in her eyes, quote, It's always touching. Can't help but think back all the time, you know? End quote. Her husband, Staff Sergeant Sumter Grubb, wrote the letter May 19, 1944. The Orlando Sentinel reported that Peggy met Sumter on a blind date and found him witty, good-looking, and well-dressed. Quote, he could be in overalls and look like he stepped out of Esquire. He had a very keen sense of humor, very thoughtful, very good-natured, end quote. They were married for six years before he left Virginia aboard the SS Caleb Strong. She was 30, and he was 35. A month after the Caleb Strong landed in Africa, Sumter was turning from his seventh mission aboard an American bomber. The plane behind Sumter's hit a sudden updraft, and its propellers sliced into Grubb's bomber, killing all ten men aboard. I have full body chills. The, the episode reveals that he died in combat, but not that it was an allied plane. Mm-hmm. Just a random happenstance. A, just, I mean, tragic is an understatement. Mm-hmm. 42 years later, Sumter's lost letter was delivered to Peggy. Quoting the Sentinel, quote, The words in the letter transported her back four decades to a love that was young and intense. End quote. At the time of the broadcast, the post office was still searching for three final soldiers or their family members in order to return their letters. The soldiers were Private John J. Thomas, who sent four letters to Ohio and Massachusetts, Sergeant C.F. Smith, who sent two letters to Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, and Morris Johnson, who sent one letter to San Francisco, California. In an update, Unsolved Mysteries reported that two additional letters were delivered. The only sender left was Sergeant C.F. Smith. The problem with locating Smith's family, the thing that made it so difficult, was that Smith is the most common name in America, and they didn't have a first name to go off of, just C.F. This is where I think that it would be, they don't, they open the letter Hold your hand over the content. Just don't look at what they wrote. Just look at the signature at the bottom. <laughs> look, and hope look you at can the, read it. <laughs> look at the, the first name of the person it's addressed to and assume that it's that person, Smith. Aha, but here's what you don't know. His mom had remarried and changed her name. Oh. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but finally, in 1989... Postmaster General Anthony M. Frank delivered the final two letters from Sergeant Clarence F. Smith to his brother, Norman Smith, in a ceremony in Washington. Yay! It was Meg Harris who called Norman to confirm that they'd finally found the recipient, and he told the Philadelphia Inquirer she, quote, went into an uproar she was so happy, end quote. Clarence had been shot down over Italy by German fighters on July 6, 1944, two months after writing the letters to his mother and a friend. An Italian family buried his body, and the Smith family retrieved it after the war. Ah, oh, man. Yeah. Why do they all have to die? Why does war have to happen? 
It's terrible. It took 45 years for the letters to reach his brother. The one to his mother read in part, quote, Dear Mom, I sure hope you are all well. Today may be the last letter you will receive from here, so don't worry if you don't hear from me for a while. I'll write as soon as I am able. Take good care of yourselves. Good night all. Your son, Buddy. Oh my god. <laughs> oh man. It gets you right in the heart. It's oh, just... Oh, gee. But if they had received that letter, then the last thing they would have gotten was, don't worry if you don't hear from me. Yeah. But they would never have heard from him, yeah. whether they got this letter or not. Yeah. It just... Heart. Broken. Oh, God. Receiving the letters was very emotional for Norman. He told the Inquirer, quote, You figure all these years what could have been and wasn't and so forth and so on. I think of all the years that have been wasted. I think he would have had a family like I do. We could go out together, picnics and things, families visiting, Sunday dinners. It brings it all back today. Ethima, you said this was a feel-good, and I'm about to cry. I know. It's, like, not about murder, but it's still about war. <laughs> so. It's still about tragedy, a mass tragedy. Yeah. And I find myself just wondering if these people who wrote these letters had a sense of what they were facing. Like, if they, as they were writing, were thinking... This, this could be the end for me. They'd already been attacked, apparently. So mm -hmm. they all may very well have been facing their own mortality. And here they were trying to comfort their loved ones at home and make sure they knew how much they loved them. Mm -hmm. As Radar says in MASH, you gotta ride him to get him. <laughs> I have one last story I saved for the end. In 1986... Terry Espinoza received a letter from her boyfriend, Raul Alvarez. In his letter, Raul promised, quote, No one will ever come between us, end quote. Despite 42 years between the writing and delivery, he was true to his word. Terry and Raul married in 1950. Raul happened to have made his career as a letter carrier for USPS. That is the story of the lost letters of World War II. Well, some of the lost letters. Turns out this is an, an entirely unique situation. I read a few other stories of people finding letters from the past or from actually World War II and then taking it upon themselves to find their owner. In 2015, a French woman in her 80s received a letter intended for her great-grandfather. The letter arrived at the home of Troyes Paila 138 years after the sender originally mailed it, in 1877. Goodness, that was a little bit late. Yep. It was sent from Saint-Dunod to Toulon, six miles away. What? <laughs> <laughs> It was about an order for yarn. 
I don't think that person ever got their yarn. <laughs> they might have walked the six miles and picked it up. <laughs> Would have taken less than 138 years. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this shorter than normal episode. We hope you enjoyed this break from murder to settle for a different kind of tragic death. You know, when you're trying to cover a show called Unsolved Mysteries and give someone a break, I guess you, all you can really depend on is the bank robberies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those good old bank robberies. It is lovely that these people got to hear from their lost loved ones one last time. Yeah, that's the heartfelt part of it. That's the feel-good part of it, is the people getting that final, that additional, that bonus. I'm thinking of you, or I love you. It's sweet. And Mike Minguez is our hero of the day. I can actually relate to this feeling because our mom died in... 2008. And uh, just last year, a family friend sent a DVD that an organization called Life Chronicles had made of her. And so for the first time in, what, 11 years, I got to see her and hear her and hear new words from her. And so it was words from beyond the grave from my mom. Mm -hmm. I think Life Chronicles is a non-profit. Mm -hmm. It's a neat thing. I don't know if that's local to California or it's probably not a national thing, but I'm pretty sure it's local to Santa Barbara. But it was really special. Yeah. Yes, it was. She said some very wise things. I can't remember them at the moment. <laughs> I wrote down a quote from her. Let's see. I found it. Do something to make the world a better place and do something to fill your life with joy because ultimately life is really about joy and try to make sure as many people as possible can live a satisfying and joyful life. And there's some give and take, you know, you give something up so that somebody else can do better, but you get joy from that because you know they're doing better. So it's not like, oh, I don't get to do this because I donated to that. It's like, hey, we're all getting there together. Janice Uyoa Brown. Well, I don't know how to follow that up. Except to say, hold your loved ones close. Tell the people you love that you love them. And if they look at you funny, know that it's just their own deep personal insecurity and not about <laughs> you. <laughs> That's all we have time for today. <laughs> because it's getting very hot in this closet. And we're very awkward. If, but if you can't get enough of this awkward, let us know by emailing us at yousolvedmystery at gmail.com. You can also follow us at our Instagram, which is yousolvedamystery. The awkwardness doesn't carry over quite as well on Instagram, but just know a lot of anxiety goes into every one of those posts. <laughs> I want to deny it, but it's true. <laughs> Please 
please don't share this with your friends. (laughs) (laughs) But also do. Share our last episode with them. (laughs) Don't start with this one. It really is very hot in this closet. So have a lovely night and we'll see you next time. As always, I'm Athena. And I'm Chandra. Join us next time for another episode of You Solved a Mystery. Mm-hmm.